Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Fellow fiends, welcome to another terrifying and delectable episode of Nightmare on Film Street. The horror podcast with zero credibility, but all of the blood, ghouls, and gore. Your puny heart can handle. <laughs> Let's give a grave welcome to our hosts, John and Kim. Hello again, fiends, and welcome to Nightmare on Film Street. I'm John. I'm Kim. And this week we are talking about two movies that I picked. For my birthday. Yep, it is John's birthday soon. 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 In fact, like next week's mini episode is more my birthday episode <laughs> than this episode. And it's also the beginning of July, which we are celebrating Greedy Guts Month at Nightmare on Film Street. It's all about uh, selfish pleasures guilt <laughs> guilty okay. pleasures it's not all about selfish pleasures selfish Kim. pleasures uh guilty pleasures underrated films the movies that you love to hate or hate to love or just love plain simple and yeah. clean and easy I, um, okay i'm gonna take over from here <laughs> thank uh, you <laughs> it's not necessarily movies that you feel like you have to defend but that's definitely lumped into that category. It could just be like, fuck it, I love these movies. And I want to talk about them. Which is exactly what we're doing here on this week's episode. The Sound of Screams. That's what we're going with for the title, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sound of Screams. And this movie's got, these movies have got some good screams. These movies got some good screams there. I would like to point out just right up at the top because I've been wanting to tweet about this and I get a lot of people <laughs> tweeting at me that I uh over enunciate movies. And uh you know, after editing a recent episode, I have to say I agree with you. You say movies. <laughs> oh god, do I? <laughs> you, you movies. Put like, it's like M O U O O V I E S. Movies. This is a good movie. Well, have we said what we're talking about this week? What movies you have subjected us to for this week's episode of Nightmare on Film Street? What were your greedy guts picks, John? You, you know, I'd like to uh, I'd like to address something for a minute here. I think it is the most ungreedy thing I've done. The so most selfless, selfless act 
that I've ever performed on this podcast by making you all, gifting you all, on my birthday no less, with <laughs> Brian De Palma's blowout. This is like in grade school where the birthday kid brings their own cupcakes. And then you have to watch me eat them. That's exactly <laughs> what this is. Um, and then uh, we're also going to be talking about Peter Strickland's Berberian Sound Studio, which is a great movie, but I got to tell you, it's it's all, it's, it's all about Blowout this week, guys. <laughs> if it were up to me, we would just be talking about Blowout. And before we go any further, I'd like to say I think this is a perfect movie and a perfect time to say... Uh, happy 4th of July, American oh, yeah. listeners. Happy Independence. Hope that's going well for you. Super planned this one out. Gave you a movie with some fireworks. There's like macaroni salad, maybe. I don't think <laughs> yeah. there's any in this movies, but you're probably eating it. I, that's a feel, I feel like that's a thing you do. Potato salad, burgers. I, there's got to be some sort of contest for who can have Ketchup, the most layers in their dip. Mustard, pickles even. Freedom fries. Yeah independence in general shorts with stripes on them <laughs> we're all about it this these week. are a many splendid thing <laughs> okay well before we get to, before we get too far gone kim what's keeping you creepy this week well john um we're kind of in between in this really weird strange week where canadians had our celebration earlier in the week americans are now off with their celebration so nobody's getting any work done mm. and there are a lot of movies in the movie theater sure kind of like ari aster's midsummer which landed on wednesday tuesday it has been in the theater for a couple days. We actually just got back from it. We are recording our Drive Home from the Drive-In episode right now uh, for our Patreon listeners. That's going to be up very soon. I can't really say very much on it because John and I haven't talked about it yet. Nope. We still have to record our Drive Home from the Drive-In, which we will. Yep. Uh, and I have to write a review on it, sure which do. I will. <laughs> it's only it's only nighttime. This is fine. Everything's great. It's all right. I've barely begun editing this podcast you're listening to right now. Um, That movie really made me want a beer and some white linens. Where are they making that beer, right? I don't know. Uh, we didn't see any beer silos. I would like to know. Definitely some wheat beer, too. Oh, it looked like it tasted great. It looked great. fresh. It looked fucking fresh. Except for the beer that had the blood in it, or the wine. Yeah. We'll, 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 we'll get to it. We'll get into it <laughs> we'll on leave. Patreon, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, do you have any like minor thoughts, first impressions of uh, Midsummer that won't spoil your opinion for me yeah. for the Patreon? And also, I'd not spoil anything for anybody listening that hasn't seen that it hasn't yet. hasn't seen it. Uh, I'd say, great follow-up to Hereditary. Uh, I don't know that I would necessarily compare it to Hereditary, as some people are doing. May also myself just now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like definitely you can see same director, uh, same... Visual language. I was going to say storyteller <laughs> is, what I, is what I was going for. Got the upside down camera. Yeah, which is funny because we just watched Deliverance and they, they pull that exact same move. God, I Did like an they? upside down camera. Yeah, uh, I think it's a good movie. I think it's worth checking out. Um... Yeah, I would totally recommend you see it in the theater this weekend if you haven't. Definitely check it out. There is not a movie that you will find this summer, apart from Crawl, which is coming out next week. Let's pretend that one's not coming out. Or 48 meters down what at the end of the summer. I'm just saying it's the summeriest movie that's out this summer. And then I started thinking of all the other all movies the other that are coming movies, out this yeah. movie. I was like, oh, they're all summer. They're all going to be great. <laughs> yeah. Scary stories to tell in the dark. It's got a scarecrow. Summer. Yeah. This movie just made me want beer. And a flowy dress. 
Also, I, we saw Annabelle Comes Home this past weekend. Another summer-tastic movie. It had everything on the shelf at the Conjuring, or at the Warren's home. Yeah, if you got a few days off this week, oh man, you got a lot of movies to watch at the movie theater. Oh, matinee, you need you some air conditioning in the middle of the afternoon. Also, you want to get away from your aunt's kids. They're <laughs> annoying. They scream. All they do is blow those damn bubbles right in your beer. You hate it. Oh man, that is the friggin' worst. Make my glass all sticky. Yeah, go Damn for a it, double Todd. feature. Damn it, t- go for a double feature. Make a day out of it. I gotta go get some smokes. Like you don't smoke. <laughs> I gotta say though, if you go to, if you tell people you're going to get milk or you're going to get smokes, and you don't come back for two movies, uh, they will think you are gone and dead. And they will be so happy when you come back. This is the best thing dead. you could because you're not dead. This is the best thing you could do for your family. It's what's gonna keep you together until the next Fourth of July. But 4th of July is really about. It's yeah. about family. Making them think you're going to leave and then just pulling the rug out from underneath <laughs> them. Like, suckers, you got me for another 12 months. Is there any other news this week that we need to, like, download? We really should have debriefed before we did this. Probably. I think we're still in that, like, don't talk to each other mode yeah, it was that weird. we get into out of a movie theater. And we ran out of popcorn, so it's like, what else am I supposed to do? Yeah, we got nothing in common anymore. <laughs> Pass uh, me the Skittles. So uh, Fantasia Film Festival just recently released their full lineup and schedule. Uh, that kicks off July 11th in Montreal. We'll be there. We will be there uh, on July twelfth because they are doing a documentary on the Phantom of the on Phantom of the Paradise, and then they're playing Phantom of the Paradise, and then they're fucking, and then we're going to all of it, <laughs> and then there's a Q and A, like a full sit down chat with the producer who's getting a Lifetime Achievement Award. We're gonna be at that, and then the following weekend, Joe Bob's there. Talk about how we're gonna be there. We're gonna be at that. So uh, if you're in the Montreal area, there definitely go to the Fantasia website, check out the full lineup. They have a whole host. Of just like there's a month of movies, movies. a A whole shit ton of movies, movies, guys. Um, But yeah, come have a beer with us uh, at the Irish Embassy. Is that the name of the pub? I think so. Yeah, we'll be there. Um, Just follow the the herd of tired badges. (laughs) (laughs) If you can't make the Fantasia Film Festival, we'll of course be doing all of our coverage. Um, throughout the festival, throughout the month of July, over at nofspodcast.com. And you can also keep up to what we're drinking, eating, watching, seeing on Instagram and Twitter. Um, you know those channels, at nofspodcast on Twitter, at Nightmare on Film Street on Instagram. And I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, uh, because we will be in Montreal for both of our birthdays, birthdays proper, uh, my birthday will be better than your birthday this year, hands down. Yeah, just a little heads up, if you are in Montreal, our birthdays fall on the Saturdays that we will be there, <laughs> so if you see us on a Saturday, wish one of us a birthday, you might yeah. be right, you have a 50-50 <laughs> chance. Yeah, I mean, if you see me glowing because I just got to see a 4K restoration of Phantom of the Paradise yeah, on the I'm biggest really goddamn screen. Yeah, I'm not really happy that that's falling on your birthday. I'm pretty stoked about it. I'm the one that has the big birthday this year, and you get the fucking dope You're also movie. the one whose camera is working on her phone, so enjoy taking lots of photos of me with a beaming smile on my face. Well, we're clearly uh, still drunk on Ari Aster's Midsummer. Uh, we got a lot to say about this movie. It's killing me that we're not talking about it. Um, but yes, uh, please do go see it if you have the time. Uh, it is very strange. And if you want to support this podcast, of course, or you're already supporting us on Patreon, you're going to be able to get that episode this weekend. Um, I'm hoping to have it up Thursday, Friday. 
we'll see how productive I am tonight. <laughs> um, but you can get that at patreon.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. We also have an Annabelle Comes Home episode and a Child's Play episode. So oh, there yeah. is no shor- shortage of bonus content over there. But shall we get into it? Let's get into it. Let's talk about Brian De Palma's blowout. It began with a sound that no one was ever supposed to hear. He's the one I saw? Yes, he says he pulled a girl out of the car. And I would like you to forget about her. You're right, it was a shot. He recorded a murder. They say it never happened. There are still loose ends, witnesses. The girl, I've decided to terminate her. Terminate her. Terminate her. Brian De Palma's Blowout. Now you hear it. Now you don't. Blowout from 1981. It's directed by Brian De Palma and is currently sitting at a 7.4 out of 10 on IMDb, 87% on Rotten Tomatoes, 4 out of 4 from Roger Ebert, and 4 out of 5 on Letterboxd. Some high ratings for this movie. It's a surprisingly... Not that I wasn't expecting it to be a good movie, but it is a fucking great movie. I love this movie. Extremely watchable, easy to understand, still surprises you, thrilling, it had it all. Also, John Travolta's a stud in it. You find John Travolta attractive in this movie? He's kind of dreamy in this. And I'm not, like, in the John Travolta camp, but I understand it. (laughs) Yeah. I can I can understand it. <laughs> what what phase of the movie do you find John Travolta attractive? Uh, is it just all pre-obsession or just like Oh no, he's dreamy the whole time. The whole time. Yeah. Okay. The the dream is constant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm I'm just trying to figure out where where does that that dreaminess end? Like where does he stop being a stud muffin? Not in this movie in particular, oh. in his career. Cuz obviously you got uh Welcome Back Cotter, Carrie, uh he's not in carrie is he he's totally in carrie is that him oh yeah oh no so sorry 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 it's christine where it's not him no it's (laughs) (laughs) it could just as easily be though yeah because i was like no one of those movies it's not him but it looks like him if you're not wearing your glasses while you watch christine it's he's in it (laughs) he's the worst bully of all cuts his yogurt in half it's hard for me to pinpoint. I, it's not hard at all. I don't. I don't know specifically what it is about this movie that I love so much, but it just it hits like so many beats for me. Like I don't think this movie does anything wrong. Like I'm I'm a big uh, noir guy. Yeah. Well, in terms of birthday picks, this is the absolute perfect thing for you because yes, it's a noir. Film. Oh, you don't think the the David Cronenberg double feature or the David Lynch double feature <laughs> wasn't enough? No. I mean, in in terms of shoehorning this film into our podcast, oh sure, this is the best, best, best place for it because it's noir and it's almost Hitchcocky. Totally Hitchcockian. 
I think everything Brian De Palma's ever done is is Hitchcockian. That's a terrible word. It's a horrible word. And it immediately sounds kind of dumb to say something is Hitchcockian. It's just like, oh, so you know four directors? And the answer is yes. Yeah, they're on my Mount Rushmore. It's my Mount Rushmore of directors, really, right? <laughs> Who's uh, your Mount Rushmore of directors? Ooh, that's tough. Um, I don't have a great answer for you. Definitely Hitchcock's got to be. Is it Lynch, Cronenberg, Hitchcock, <laughs> and De Palma? <laughs> Maybe. I mean, hey. Where's Tarantino on that? Well, where we, I got multiple Rushmores. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've got my summer Rushmore, my holiday Rushmore. I've got a little place in Aspen that's also a Rushmore. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, probably, I don't know, like, uh, Sam Raimi's probably on there. Damn, I can't pick four. This is tough. Because, like, just off the top of my head, it's like uh, Alfred Hitchcock, Sam Raimi, David Cronenberg, um, Stanley Kubrick. I guess there's four. Um, but, like, goddamn, like, why would I not have David Lynch or Brian De Palma on that list? Mine is, like, Zemeckis. Oh, Zemeckis is Peter Jackson. Pick pre-CGI Timber. You can't, no, you gotta take it all. You gotta take it all. I'm saying, I'm taking Stanley Kubrick even with Barry Lyndon. Pre-CGI Tim Burton. <laughs> and... I love that your Mount Rushmore has an asterisk. Like, everybody <laughs> that comes gets a pamphlet where they're just like, no, 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 no I know. Just if, <laughs> While you're here, if you could not discuss Alice in Wonderland, we'd really appreciate it. If you could that. just leave Dark Shadows off the list, that would be great. You can talk about Sweeney Todd in the car ride home. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's you know, if you could keep it to it's hush It's the tones. end of canon. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my fourth one is. What if it's just, like, a second Tim Burton? <laughs> and, like, it's a younger Tim Burton glaring at the older Tim Burton. <laughs> just to convey the, the the mood. I don't know who your fourth director would be. Neither of us said John Carpenter. That's really sad. I mean, there's a billion other directors we really want to start getting into it. Like, As soon as you open the doors with John Carpenter, though, then it's like you're going to have John Carpenter and not Wes Craven. And then it's... Fuck, right? Yeah. You no, can't, Billy Wilder. You can't... Oh, Billy Wilder. Yeah. He might be my fourth. We could go on for years. Oh, this is hard. Let's and get off this. It's unde- undetermined. I think we agree. Brian De Palma's great. Uh, but yes, uh, Blowout. Definitely more of a thriller than a horror movie. Uh, but I honestly, I, and this is exactly why I picked this movie and why I've always wanted to talk about it on the podcast. I think this movie has the... Most sinister villain of all time. Of any movie that we've ever talked about. Yeah, Michael Myers is awful. Ghostface is crazy. The the Firefly Flammy. The Firefly Flammy. I can't say it. The Firefly Flammy. Yep. (laughs) The Firefly family uh, are sadistic and twisted. But Burke, John Lithgow as Burke in this movie is just a pit of darkness. He is the most unscrupulous bad guy ever. And he shows I no think, sign of human I think emotion. we should, I agree with you. I think we should hold that thought, though. Because okay. him being the devil does not come till later in the movie. His motivations are unclear. And he's kind of just a, a for-hire bad guy up until a point, And then he's very much not. So let's, point. let's for-hire talk about him until he's not for-hire. But you were on a really good thread there about it not being a horror movie. Well, technically, this movie starts with a horror movie. It's got that super quasi-meta film within a film thing happening that you don't really even understand until the, the, the screen pulls out and you're in a screening room. It starts with almost the, the babysitter murders meets Black Christmas. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like every stereotypical slasher intro you've ever seen. Which is great, too, because it's 1981. And Brian De Palma's already like, yeah, this is a trope. This is, these are the movies. And like, those are the movies that we would see for the next 10 years. Like they, obviously they already existed. We already saw them, but they weren't as prominent, I don't think. And the formula hadn't been like so cut and dry established. Yeah. The stalker killer in, I want to see the movie that Brian De Palma (laughs) filmed for this movie. Like the film within the film that's not real. Yeah. There's a great shot where this the killer, the POV style killer, looks in the mirror and you get to see the killer head on, and he's a dork. Yeah, he's a huge. Dork. Well, he's wearing he's wearing a big dork mask as well. Mm, yeah. But he's a dork. He is a bit of a dork. And he's got like a he's obviously he's like, like sexually motivated, so he's kind of like maybe. You know, How could he not be? Every time he turns around in that sorority there's house, there's so somebody... much happening in that oh, sorority yeah. house. There's what like if that whole sex yeah. uh, masturbating? You got like girls dancing in their underwear, showers out the wazoo. <laughs> it's insane. It's it's almost as though that whole sequence takes place inside his mind. Like they're all quietly studying <laughs> or making tea. And he's like, oh man, it's so hot in here right now. God, Everywhere I turn. <laughs> <laughs> These girls are sinning. <laughs> oh, but it's a it's a great little sequence. And I love it. I swear to God, there's like no cuts in it when he's when he goes from like the door to the windows and stuff. It's all set up like a play. Like everything is happening happening simultaneously, and we're looking in this tiny dollhouse of like sorority sins. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've got all these crazy sound effects. Uh, which will come into play later in the movie. Like there's the sound of the wind and the the breathing and. Uh, the breathing is so awful. It's, it's like, terrible. <laughs> it takes, and there's also a heartbeat, which is the beginning of this movie. It starts as we're still on a black screen, but it, it's it's all too much. It's and very he, heavy handed. He peels back the curtain. He holds up the knife. She sees it, looks at him, and lets out a horrible scream. It's, it's like, like it's great that we picked both these two films because in retrospect, I'm realizing they both hinge on a terrible scream. Thank you. Nicely done, John. They're about making a horror movie, more or less. Both of these movies are about making a horror movie. Yeah, and they hinge on terrible screams. It takes our characters into like these places where they, they question their own reality uh, in, in two different ways. And we're, oh, I cannot wait to get to it. Um, if you're unfamiliar with Blowout, uh, John Travolta is a Foley artist, and he uh, he adds sound to movies. Uh, so his job is to capture good screams and good breathing and and good wind, which is adequate a- wind. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly, and that's what the director sends him out for because he says the wind sucks in this. I need better wind. Uh, so he goes out one night with his microphone, just capturing the night sounds, uh, including an owl, a couple who's. I don't know if I'd say that the couple is trying to engage in public uh Oh, they public sure sex. are. I would say uh, the, the boyfriend's husband, husband yeah, is. He's like, it's fine. She's like, he's creepy. He's like, it's fine. He's looking at us. <laughs> let's just move down here a little bit. Like, they don't, it doesn't stop them. They don't go home. They're just like, let's just find another spot. <laughs> I don't know if he told her what they were doing when they went out for their evening walk. Uh, but while he's while he's scanning around and getting some owl sounds, he hears a car coming. The car skids. The car has a tire blowout and goes off the bridge into the water below. And because he's such a dreamy good guy, John Travolta, whose character's name is Jack Terry, I guess we should mention. We'll we call him Jack. Uh, Jack dives into the water, helps rescue a girl from the front seat 
who is definitely going to drown without his help. While he's down there trying to rescue her, he see he sees the already dead corpse of whoever was driving the car. Uh, he manages to rescue Sally and takes her back to the hospital where he finds out that that poor, unfortunate dead driver was a presidential candidate. He's a governor. Yeah, he was the governor. He was running for president. And like the way they talk about it, he's basically like the 80s JFK. Like he, oh, he could have been the next president. He had my vote. But so it's all really hush-hush at the hospital, despite the girl he's rescued, Sally, being drugged and incoherent and, and being really erratic. Once the hands of the governor are there, they're trying to get Jack and Sally out of the hospital without anybody seeing them, just like rushing them out. And so because yeah, he's, he's married, I mean, like, once, of course, he's married. once you say politician found dead with woman, like it's never gonna be with beautiful young blonde. Yeah. yeah. So uh, before Jack even knows it, he's rescued this girl. And now she's in his care. She's basically thrown in his car. Yeah, pretty well. They need to get them the fuck out before the news crew shows up and starts asking questions. I think it's just crazy that no bribes happened in this movie. Yeah, right? Like, they you never gotta, try to what? bribe Jack. Like I would have, I would be asking for dollar bills at every every request Jack got in this movie. Well, like, I mean, oh, you want you want my audio tape to disappear? Like, oh, you want me to take this girl, make this girl disappear? Like, I would be, I would be asking for bribes. <laughs> Well, I, th- I think the thing is that Jack doesn't want to be quiet about it, right? Yeah. So, like, a bribe's he not He either doesn't do want to be involved or he doesn't yeah. want to do anything dishonest. Yeah, I think his position is basically like, you know, uh, I think people should know about this, but whatever. As long as nobody comes asking, I'm not going to say anything. But if somebody asks me about it, I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think that's basically his position. Uh, we find out later that he, he has a bit of background with the police. And I think that's why he feels like he's in an unethical situation, right? Because if he was just some guy, he might have tried to take advantage of it the way some other people do. That's very true. That is true. I forgot how that had come into play. (laughs) Why are you laughing? I don't know. (laughs) Just So while Sally's asking him about why he does what he does and how he works for the movies, he explains that he used to work for the police and he was the guy that would set up a wire so that way um, they could record the conversations that undercover agents were having with mobsters and in an unfortunate situation the guy who has this this wire uh, and tape recording device set up on him is is so nervous that he's sweating uh, and he's he's electrocuting himself that scene which in itself also kind of feels like a movie within a movie because it has nothing to do it's almost like a flashback sequence we're watching it is a flashback sequence but it's a different style of movie almost altogether it's very thrilling like it's oh, yeah. so engrossing that Th- scene that is that is the thing about this movie and honestly like a lot of brian de palma stuff in general it really pulls you in and it gets yeah. so tense so quickly with so little because that's that little story it's only two minutes long maybe and it's a short story. Essentially, uh, Jack's just telling Sally what, what what his involvement was with the police. And it's got this crazy rise and fall, which I'm sorry I interrupted. We'll get to it. But it's so tense for how short it is. And then it's just gone, disappeared until obviously the police remember him. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like this, this also kind of comes into like the, the Hitchcockian elements of Brian De Palma's work in this movie in particular and I, th- I think it's a, it's also a big trope in noir in general like having a following sequence where we have characters that are being tailed characters that are being stalked uh, and this is like another side of that so we have the good guys following the bad guys uh, versus some 
villain who's maybe stalking a girl that he's going to kill. And I think that's what immediately makes this so tense. Also, we know that this guy is, is like moments away from being caught. And unfortunately, he is. Um, they discover that he's an undercover cop. And before John Travolta can swoop in and save the day, this guy is murdered. Which is like breaking protocol. And so there's there's so many layers of um, the guy that John Travolta's with is like, no, you can't go in there because the guy has rushed to the bathroom, obviously to rip off this wire that's burning him. And the mobsters followed him into the bathroom so John Travolta is risking a lot by running in after them. Yeah, both of their lives, basically, right? But he's already too fucking late. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. They've hung him with the wire. Yeah. In this gross alley bathroom. And I mean, like, I wouldn't say that this is... It's definitely not specific to this movie, how we have a lingering shot on the feet, just like I a love, few inches. There's some. There's a really great foot... See, I, well, okay, yeah, uh, I agreed, agreed. Uh, it is so, oh man. This is the best dangling foot scene <laughs> of all the dangling You're not wrong. Scene. And we're not even, this isn't it. I'm this totally is, with you. Oh my God. But that's, that, that is that is a trope in movies. Like you do show that if somebody, if somebody hangs themselves, typically you're either going to see uh, an arm go limp or most, most generally uh, just feet sort of off the ground. Yeah, um, that's probably a rating thing, though, because um, nothing screams NC-17 like a bloated face with a wire cutting off the circulation. I mean, hey, you get both in this movie. <laughs> both in the same scene. Oh, I can't wait till we talk about those feet. All right, let's get there. <laughs> All right, sure. So back in the real world, for some reason, Jack is really interested in Sally. He keeps trying to get, get her to go for drinks and stuff, which I think initially is because he wants to go through this situation with somebody else who's been there and he he's pretty sure Sally has some answers that she's not providing. Yeah. She's very nonchalant and disinterested. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She wants this to be over from the second she wakes up in the hospital. Which you think if she's sleeping with this governor guy and he's died, you'd think she'd be beside herself. You'd think she would be losing it a little bit. Assuming she actually cared about him. Well, that's what we learn is kind of the, the case yeah uh john travolta is very insistent jack i should stop saying john travolta jack is very insistent from the beginning that he heard a bang before the tire blowout and once he's back with his tape and he's able to slow things down and listen to them on repeat he can he can narrow in on a gunshot that happens just seconds not seconds just like a half a second before the tire blowout but that, nobody wants to believe him that scene where he's listening back to his tape. First of all, seeing people use old film equipment in movies is such a satisfying thing, like watching reels spinning and stuff. I could literally watch that without a narrative for two I think two that hours. might be half the reason I like this movie. It's great just watching reels spinning and tape being It's got a tactile and... feel to it. Yeah! yeah. I, I just love it. <laughs> I, I'm not going to lie. I think I've talked about it in the podcast before. I do have an obsession with reel-to-reel tapes, like just close-up shots of reel-to-reel oh, tapes. Great. Or or cassettes. I don't know what it is. I, I got like six movies off the top of my head right now that I could uh, that have all of that. <laughs> but if this scene, the him discovering the audio tape in his studio scene, isn't used in every single film class on the planet, then and if you went to film film school and you did not learn off this scene, then your teacher's a failure. <laughs> this is in an insane level of filmmaking that my brain doesn't even comprehend what I was seeing visually versus auditory. Like, it is such a 
a a hybrid of the two while being neither. See, that is oh, that, this is why I love Brian De Palma so much. Like I love his split screen stuff. I love when he uses split screen. I think it's always great. Uh, I think it's almost always great. Uh, even in Carrie, where we're just like a close up on her face while we're also watching the destruction, and like that one's cool because like the fucking split screen's like moving around, like picture in a picture, and it's giving you perspectives that you wouldn't get. Yeah. Otherwise, and that's exactly why he does that. Uh, in the Brian De Palma documentary, which I highly encourage you all to watch, he he talks about movies being limited because in the real world you can look around and you can see whatever you want. It's almost a surprise that he's oh, not man, doing. He VR. would love those forty. Yeah. Yeah. So like his idea of split screen is that you can look anywhere so i will give you the places that you would like to look to more or less like it's a way for him to give you more than just one image just genius but he also blends that in with like those dioptic shots where you have two two images in focus in the foreground and background which he's just a fucking master he's the only person that can do it and he takes all of that and blends it together with like a flashback dramatization of that tire blowout is that what you're talking about yeah so what um jack terry is doing john travolta he's holding a pencil out while he's listening to the tape and remembering where he was pointing the microphone as he was recording so we hear an owl hooting and the, he lifts the pencil up and we remember in our mind's eye that scene that we already watched. And then some of those things start to infiltrate visually with what's happening on the screen. We're just in the studio, but then all of a sudden we see the uh, the owl in the foreground and John Travolta is literally looking at the owl. It's dreamlike almost, but we, as an audience, you completely understand what's happening in that scene. And I don't think I've ever seen something done non-literally on the screen and be interpreted so literally. Does I mean, that make sense? No, I totally understand what you're saying. I need to read this script. Because there are, like you're saying, there are huge sections of this movie that have no dialogue and it's all visual, but it's all storytelling. Mm-hmm. Like, how the fuck do you tell a story with audio in a visual medium? Like, ah, oh, he's the best description, so goddamn good. The best description I have of this scene, if you haven't watched the film or you, or you don't kind of... Please What do. we're saying doesn't Please make sense, do. is in hereditary when i'm with you when the son who's definitely suffering from ptsd uh i'm diagnosing it here on the podcast uh after what has happened during the inciting incidents of the film he's sitting in class and then all of a sudden there's a rear view mirror visually on the screen and it's an impossible mirror it doesn't exist there and it's only for a flash but you completely understand the mental state of that character in that moment oh, yeah. and where his mind is I with that visual that cue that's this whole scene is that like the visual cues with the audio it's not it's to mention nuts. the sheer fact that what he's listening for is a tire blowout and so we are zoomed in on that tire cuz that's what he's really trying to focus in on and the tire is just at the edge of the frame so it's rotating just like his tape recorder is like god damn it i love this movie so much it's it's an insane scene it is amazing it's incredible brian de palma is amazing like that's what it comes down to like i i also the uh, owl like looks fucking cool this giant (laughs) owl you have not stopped talking about that owl and like john travolta was looking right at the owl but he wasn't but he was 
Because he was listening. And it, it, that too is just a, an exclamation point on the power of sound in movies, which is the whole point of both of these films. Absolutely. Is drawing attention to the to something that we completely take for granted in cinema. I, not everybody, but I definitely do. And I know that if if it's good, you don't even think about it. Yeah, that, that and, is the unfortunate part, And right? that is the... But it's that's wonderful to, to be able to draw attention to how great something is that, that we normally take completely for granted. Yeah. And how much time and effort and sometimes how much personal stakes are for just a little sound. Oh bite. my god, I appreciate this now. And then we're going to go to another movie and I'm going to completely forget about it because it's not being yeah. um, called attention to. I mean, honestly, I feel that way about scores. Um, it, it's it's always interesting to me now when I've, I've gone to see a movie for the first time. Uh, at the theater, new release, and when I go to on Twitter to see what everybody else thinks about it, everybody's talking about the score, uh, which I find so interesting that people are really paying attention for that stuff now. I think that's awesome, but it isn't until I see a movie a second time, usually, that I actually hear the score, unless it's really prominent and really... I think when scores are good, they just they just create an emotional response in the viewer. Mm-hmm. At least it's how I feel about it. Because when I'm watching something, I don't get I don't necessarily get sad because of what I'm seeing. It's because the music tells my brain to be sad while I'm looking and at what scared. I'm looking at. I'm I'm a serial eye closer. If I if I know there's a jump scare coming, or I I can't even help it. I it's so surprising that like you're not way more in touch with foley art and uh, well, that's and, the and, thing and is scores. I still get anxiety from those scenes if I'm not watching those are the only times that I really really notice score and sound and like those tense scenes because I'm depriving myself of of that visual sense you know so all I hear is sound in that in those moments but I I too am one of those people who doesn't really listen to score and I honestly don't think I ever listen to it unless say um you put on the score for something we've seen recently and I know it and I'm like wait a minute, I did hear the score. <laughs> yeah, it's it's crazy, it's right? Like because a, you start to play the movie in your head. Yeah, it's it's a weird kind of a sense to not be consciously paying attention to something and then... be f- Have it be familiar. Yeah, it's like your body recognizes it. By the way, I just I just want to jump back for a quick second. You're kind of blowing my mind right now because I think... A, I, I'm not speaking for everybody, but I think, you know, we're all chasing those moments of like when we first got scared as kids watching horror movies. And I think sometimes it's usually maybe you're peeking around a corner or you're hearing a horror movie or, you know, you're too scared. So you close your eyes. It's like you are still having those like authentic childhood horror movie scares that. I don't have any more because I, I keep my eyes open the whole time. <laughs> People always seem genuinely surprised at how into horror I am and how much it still scares me. Like how I don't do haunted houses and stuff. People are always really surprised at that. It's like, oh no, I'm a wuss. That's why I'm here. Yeah. You're this pr- is fun. You're proof that we're not terrible. being desensitized. <laughs> yeah, you're not going numb No, to not it. at all. I can't play first person video games. They terrify me. E- even like the shooty ones. Like I don't like. The shooty ones. It's too intense. I prefer to watch. I prefer to be a witness. That's why I like my horror media in 2D. I don't do VR for that very reason. It's funny that this has come up too because I was thinking that uh, video games. I don't, I, I don't want to say video games could learn a lot from this movie movie but this movie made me feel like I had a hands-on approach with the story like I was so familiar with it because uh, I had explored it myself is kind of what it feels like by going through all of those bits of audio and just like zooming in on little moments it you felt do feel like, like you're deciphering the audio 
Yeah. Live on screen. It makes you feel like a fucking detective. I think that's why I love, like, Brian De Palma's movies. Uh, well, I shouldn't say that. There's, there's a lot of reasons I like Brian De Palma's movies. But I love a good detective story when I feel like I'm also responsible for figuring out the mystery. Uh, and this movie definitely does that. It also has an incredible villain, which is essential to a great thriller or noir. Yeah, okay, so we're getting into it. We discover that Sally does have an ulterior motive. She is working with a guy named Manny, who, during that actual scene where the the car veers off into the canal or the river, whatever it is, we see somebody kind of sneaking out from under the bridge and running away. Well, he just turns out to be a guy who was filming the Oh, you the know, scene. I got this new high-speed camera, and I was uh, needed a place to test it out. And I'm like, oh, I just happened to turn the camera at this uh, really convenient time in front of this car. Exactly. And he sells the stills to a tabloid, um, which also leads to another sequence, and we will talk about oh, it. Oh, man. Um, but he happens to be working with Sally, and they are part of this ploy who, where they basically catch these political figures or people of, you know, blackmailability <laughs> in uh, catching photos of them with Sally in, you know, scandalous positions. Yeah. And then blackmailing them. Yeah, John Lithgow hires Manny and Sally because he, he needs somebody in the car. Like, um... You find out later that John Lithgow was essentially hired by the uh, rival politician. But I don't think they knew what they were getting into. Because when no. he calls to give them updates on how things are going and how the operation is being handled, like, what operation? They just wanted him. They were using him as a middleman to hire Manny and whoever. Yeah. There, were no, there was no intention of a car accident, of death. It was just photographs is all they wanted they wanted to see him go into a motel room with this girl and instead what they got was they like, just the wanted scandal him caught with century. his fucking pants down but in in burke john lithgow's character's crazy mind he thinks okay the goal is take this guy down get him out of the race eliminate him eliminate him eh i could eliminate him eliminating which fun. is crazy bonkers because he is just a hired hand and this is technically a political thriller plot but as soon as you add burke into the stew it becomes nutso he is he turns this from political thriller into serial killer territory he's like michael myers he's fucking insane he's a tornado that is just tearing through this whole goddamn city to cover up one little news story it's insane yeah because all the time that we've been with with jack trying to discover or to decipher whether or not there actually was a blowout or if the tire was shot this burke character has been assassinating blonde women and we think he's going after sally but then we learn that he's actually creating a fictional serial killer in Philadelphia so that when he finally does kill Sally, it won't draw attention to it. That let's, is, let's just take a minute to simmer on that. It is the darkest plan I have ever heard of. First of all, um, it sounds like it might work. Secondly, But that holy requires shit. so much, one, murder, but like- He the has fourth, no soul. The forethought on that, he kills like three girls before we even know what he's doing it Yeah, for. we're just watching him kill girls. We're like, did you think the first time- You're doing a shitty job. Yeah, the that first time- That he didn't time, know 
because he holds who she was. He holds a photo up yeah. to Sally, and the, we think it's Sally, and then it's not. Sally. Yeah, it's oh, it's the, the, the oh man. This but he, guy he did exactly what he was expecting. He was oh, he yeah. He just finds a girl at like a fish market. He takes an ice pick that doesn't belong to him from the fish market because he just like takes his murder weapons from wherever he's committing murders. And uh, it looks like he's bumbling around. Turns out he's just... He's doing exactly what he, what he he's intending to do. Oh, man. He is... Uh, there's there's no word for him. I don't even know what it is. He's the devil. He It doesn't look like he enjoys it. It doesn't look like he doesn't enjoy it. Like, that is the craziest thing about him. You cannot necessarily get a read on him. He's he is, ambitious, but he's insane. He's like a Ted Bundy character who just found a way to become self-employed. I don't know what he did before this, but... He, it's so it's so nuts that we don't see any of the other. See, that was definitely right? a word of mouth recommendation. Do you think he just lost it? I don't know. I think he's just. Um, I mean, no witnesses, no crime is probably what he's thinking, right? Like he definitely he he plays by his own rules. He's like the Anton Chigurh in No Country for Old Men. Yeah, like he has his own he's code and he follows chaos. it. Kind of. Yeah. It's oh man, like there's nobody that comes near him that doesn't become a target. Let's talk about the second girl murder because, it, you know, it doesn't add anything more plot-wise to this podcast, but it does have the greatest hanging scene. We should uh, we should probably also point out, though, that uh, these, these murders that he's creating, he has been stabbing the design of the Liberty Bell into these women. Uh, and it's all leading up to a big Liberty Day celebration um, where they're going to be striking the bell in Philadelphia for like the first time in however many years. Um, so it's 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 all centered around that, and that's how the news uh, that's how the news has been reporting it, and that's how he's able to keep these all tied together as like a single series of sex crimes that a mythical made up serial killer is committing. It's it's so strange to say that he's made up a serial killer because he's very much a serial he's killer. Serial killer, right? But it's he's like a, he's like a coffee shop inside another serial killer. <laughs> he's the Starbucks inside the grocery store. Yeah, oh, man. it's still a grocery store, but that is a Starbucks. <laughs> so he kills. Okay, this this second girl who he kills like moments before he meets Sally, who is it's his a ultimate target. Kill or something? Like, I, yeah, is oh, he this bored? Didn't work out? I don't even know. He's impatient. We gotta say though, like right before this kill is the reveal of a mystery sound that Jack has not been able to identify. Now we know. <gasps> oh yeah. <laughs> we know it's tied to Burke, but while he's sitting in the darkness, uh, not filming, uh, while he's sitting in the darkness recording the blowout at the beginning of the movie, we hear sort of like a um, pulley sound or like a yeah, like a. Um, like a clothesline being Yeah, somebody's out or... fidgeting with some sort of retractable wire, right? Uh, and we hear it later on when uh, we hear it later on when we're first introduced to Burke while he's waiting for an auto garage to empty out so he can replace the tire that he shot out on the governor's car. We find out while he's waiting in the train station that it's a little retractable wire on his watch that he fidgets with when uh, when he's just sitting and bored. You know, some people twiddle their thumbs and some people do crosswords. What he does is reminisce about old kills, I guess? I don't know. Because so what he ends up doing is he basically fools this prostitute into... Thinking that he's a John. Exactly. So she goes to the washroom to freshen up and he goes in the stall next to her, pulls out his retractable hanging people wire and hangs her within the bathroom stall. The... This scene is, it's not so long, but this is a very long sequence in the movie. 
uh, and it's it's really stretched out for the tension. Like even just watching him walk a few paces behind this girl, like into the bathroom, takes a little while. And he like he's he, he's being very careful. He doesn't want her to hear him, but he's also sort of relishing it while he's doing yeah. it. Yeah, and just the care that he takes into sneaking into the next stall, standing on the toilet. Um, and I can't even waiting for the, the right moment to scoop the wire down. And cause she's brushing her teeth at the time. Oh, this is the greatest fucking move, right? <laughs> because like, that's the only thing that's stopping her from being murdered is that she's brushing her teeth. And because you, you can't wrap that wire around her neck. If she's got something, if her inside. hand yeah. is there, she can, she can keep something like to protect her windpipe. <sighs> so every time she, she, pulls the toothbrush out of her mouth and then puts it back in like he goes and then he has to stop and then he goes and then he has to stop and sees him which gives him the opportunity to snag her uh, where we find Kim's favorite shot of this movie oh, man. pulling out slowly from that stall out through the bathroom this sinks your heart oh, like if, if you watch that for 30 seconds with no context it's the greatest short film ever just her shoes skittering on the bathroom so shortly after that Sally arrives at the train station uh, Jack has outfitted her with a wire, similar story, uh, and he's li- he can listen in to the conversation, um, and he's personally recording it, but he can't talk to Sally. As soon as Burke shows up, he immediately whisks her away. He because wants she thinks that she's going to meet the this news anchor who, after all is said and done, nobody wants Jack's story. So him and Sally are going to go on the news, basically. Yeah. And so Sally's going to meet who she thinks is the news anchor. But Burke has been tapping their phones. And so Burke pretends to be the news anchor and he's going to kill Sally. Yeah, but and he's this is such a clever and and just evil move when they first meet because he knows he has to get her away. Uh, he says, you know, I got some bad news, Sally. I think we're being followed. Come with me quick. So she, like, immediately thinks that he's protecting her. And he has her best interests in mind, right? So, like, anytime he gives her instruction, she takes it without without questioning. Which I think is probably a fault of her character in general. Uh, I think she's very trusting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's maybe and she what... she just comes off very young and naive. And I, th- I think that's what Jack likes about her, too, right? Like, she doesn't think anybody's out to hurt her like she she thinks the best of everybody and of every situation i guess um we do see her stand up for herself a few times in the movie which is cool but in this situation like she is so fucking helpless and like there's nothing jack can do either like he is driving his car across town through parades trying to catch up with them because they have gotten on a subway and they are headed somewhere Mm -hmm. uh, somewhere where he might not be able to get to them in time and again like the beginning of this movie he's listening to this audio for as many uh clues as he can to what's actually going on he needs to her to give clues as to what subway they've gotten on which direction they're going because he doesn't know that they're going to the liberty parade until they're literally there this is oh this is what is so fucking great about this movie because we have a foley artist he's got a job he's got a backstory um and he's in a critical moment where he needs to rely on his skills as that audio artist to figure out where they are like all of the evidence all of the clues it all lies in the soundscape um so i i think that's fucking genius it, it also is a, is a great t- callback to that harrowing moment where he left the police force and he's he watched a guy get murdered 
And it's basically his fault. He's living with that still. So it's it's not just clever and fun to have somebody who has this as a career and a job. It is very integral to the story. So I think we should we should do the ending. This is a fucking tragedy. Oh yeah. I think I think we've spoiled it by now, but like <laughs> this this movie hits you so hard, the ending of oh. this movie. And then it hits you again. It is so beautifully cruel and how yeah. it is revealed to you that Jack has saved the day. He gets there in the nick of time to stop this serial killer and kill him, but not save Sally. Yeah, right? A recurring theme in this guy's fucking life. <sighs> like no matter what he did, no one no one would listen. No one would help. And he was the he put her in harm's way and she died because of it. And as much as, like, all of his suspicions were confirmed and, you know, he's finally got everything he needs to prove uh, that he wasn't crazy and that the governor was murdered, it doesn't matter anymore. Well, and the tape was thrown into the water. That's how Sally's, um... Oh, that's so true. ...learns that he's not the anchor because he gets the tape from her and throws it in the water and all Jack had time to do was make a copy of the audio. So he is the audio, the same thing he had in the beginning, which nobody believed him. And now the videotape is kaput because the original tape is gone. Yeah. And you can see that like seasons are going by. We have the Liberty Day uh, events. And then like the next scene we see, he's sitting on a bench in the snow. He's just distraught listening to this, this audio recording that he has of Sally talking to him. That's a terrible possession to have of somebody who's died and it's kind of your fault. Yeah, and it just, like, it makes her her life and her last moments worthless until he realizes, un until he finds a use for it. And it's so dark and poetic and, like, futile? Yeah, this the scream, this, this blood-curdling, like, scared-for-her-life scream that she lets out that finally calls his attention to where she is and is, is recorded on tape, and he uses it in that horror movie. That shitty, ten-people-are-gonna-see-it-opening-day horror movie. And so the movie ends exactly where it began, with uh, the co-ed scream. And the, the the director is is freaking out like, oh, this is such a great scream, Jack. Where'd you get it? It's amazing. I love it. Like, he doesn't care about it. He doesn't care where it came from. It serves its purpose. It's in the movie. That's all that matters. And well, John and nobody's going to think about it. Nobody's going to think about it. That's all it is. To, oh. any, to anybody watching, to anybody who doesn't know, it's just a good scream. And that's how we go out on. Like, that's what John Travolta says to himself. Like, while he's like, Good oh, scream. Oh, my God. Good yeah. scream. <laughs> He's just been, like, smoking cigarettes for every meal oh, for the man. last eight days. No sleep. This movie is dark. Like, you need a drink after it. Oh, yeah. I, I really, I really, really do hope you watch this movie uh, before listening to this podcast. Uh, but if not, no big deal. Watch it, even after hearing us ruin it, and let us know what you thought about it. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. If you're a fan of John Lithgow, and you should be because he's awesome. How could you not be? This is definitely one of his darkest roles. And oh, yeah. he's done some pretty dark stuff. I mean, we all saw Dexter. We all saw Ricochet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's terrifying in this. Oh, yeah. This this beats the John Lithgow and Cliffhanger. This beats the John Lithgow and... 
Pet Cemetery. I could go on. For He's a so while. evil in Pet Cemetery. <laughs> He's the worst. It's his fault. Let's be real. It is a pretty pretty evil thing to do. I saw the greatest. I saw the. I'm sorry to cut you off. I saw the greatest meme the other day where it's like Judd Crandall, like, oh, you know, there's some evil up here. You really gotta watch out and don't be scared. Like, also Judd Crandall. Oh, dead cat. I got the perfect thing for that. Come on over here. I'll show you where to bury it. It'll be fun. Um. Okay. So, what is your rating? on blowout i don't think it's a surprise my it's a strong four to four rating from me very cool uh i'm going to give it a three and a half out of four i had a feeling um it is very um it's an awesome movie but you know explain little, that point five gap it's a little thrillery for me <laughs> <laughs> okay it's well, the hey. best darn thriller i've ever seen i mean hey at least it doesn't veer into like that that mid 80s uh brian de palma erotic thriller Ooh. Ooh, 0.5 bump for that. Okay. <laughs> Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. We're going to talk about Peter Strickland's Barbarian Sound Studio. Excuse me, do you speak? No. A new world of sound awaits here. A new world that requires all your magic powers. worked on a horror film before. Horror film? This is a Santini film. Don't call my film horror again. This is going to be a fantastic film. Brutal and honest. Directed by Peter Strickland, Berberian Sound Studio is currently sitting at a 6.2 out of 10 on IMDb, an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes, 80% on Metacritic, and 3.3 out of 5 on Letterboxd. I have to say, I'm very glad that, one, that we are covering this on the podcast. Not necessarily, because this is going to be a quality half hour, but... I really needed to watch this movie again. We watched it for the first time... Last year, I think. Last year, within 365 days, and uh, we watched it for the first time. Definitely blew me away Mm -hmm. without any understanding of what it was about. 
and now we've watched it again. And we've, you get it all. We've had some time to ruminate on it. I have been stewing and brewing. I have so many thoughts, so many feelings, and none of them are co- and none of them are coherent. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I I should also like to preface this by saying I don't understand a goddamn thing about this movie. I I'm going to I'm going to say it. And I think that's also true about anything that david lynch has ever done like do do any of us really get it anything that david lynch has done any any of it no i don't think so yeah the thing with david lynch though is that there is either the guise of a linear storyline that's in murky water and it's reflecting back at you like there's there's enough there for you to speculate on whereas i'm after having thought about Berberian Sound Studio for a day or so, um, thinking about all my opinions of it and, and what I, my takeaways are, I don't know if it's intended to be interpreted literally. Yeah. Whereas um, Blowout is a very plot-driven thriller. Oh, it's a meat and potatoes it, movie. Yeah, yeah, and it's, everything is means what it means and it is what you're seeing and John Lithgow's crazy and um John Travolta's a dreamboat and all of the other things. Berberian Sound Studio is about fear and filmmaking. Fear and or fear in? Fear and. Got it. Those two things. Okay. I'm really curious why I feel so differently about not understanding this movie <laughs> than I do with David Lynch. Because, and I, I'm, I'm going to use that as an example several times. I, I can't get away from it. Um, what is it about David Lynch stuff that when you watch it, you, you already know before you're sitting down, like, oh, I'm not going to get this, but let's see what I get out of it versus Berberian Sound System. Damn it. <laughs> I've, I've been saying this wrong. For weeks. For a year. <laughs> Every time. It is too close to LCD Sound System. <laughs> And it no, it's me not. Up. It's not. Well, it's it's not that close. It is an entirely different thing. <laughs> but that is guaranteed not to be the last time you hear me make that mistake. It's going to happen again. Yeah. So what is it about Barbarian Sound Studio? Nailed it. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel so dumb. <laughs> like it's it's not. It's not that I don't understand nothing. But I, when I walk out of it, I go. I don't think I get film language the way this filmmaker gets film you language. You know what it is? It's because visually and audio-wise, it Orally, is... I think. It is your favorite film. <laughs> it is your favorite film that is without plot. Yeah. And not that that's a bad thing in any way, but what keeps it off your top 10 films of all time is that it's not an M. Night Shyamalan film. You know what I mean? Um, like if somebody's like, oh, what's it about? You're like, well. If if this had the trifecta, it was visually stunning, which it is. Yeah. It was an audio spectacle, which it is. And it had an engrossing plot, which arguably it might have. If we, <laughs> if we think about it for another year or so, it could be your favorite film ever of all time. Yeah. Right? Sure. Two out of the three things are your favorite film of all time. And what? Well, maybe what I'm trying to figure out is uh, there's an acceptance with David Lynch's stuff where, um, and maybe it's just that. I mean, I haven't read a lot of interviews from Peter Strickland, but maybe it's just that uh, I know David Lynch 
does not ever wish to talk about his work. So he really wants you to take whatever you want out of it. Whereas with something like this, maybe it's just because it's a movie and you expect movies to tell you what they're about versus having to do that legwork yourself. Maybe that's what's getting me. Um, but, you, but you're right. Like it's, it, it should be my, it should be the best movie I've ever seen. And it's, 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 it's trouble. This movie is trouble. <laughs> I was just going to say with, with David Lynch is he's got such a a unique way of not promoting but putting his films out into the world in that, especially in this day and age, you, there's no shortage of opinions and reviews and people telling you what they think about something or what something means yeah. from their perspective. And so much so that I, I find that I make a conscious decision, especially with this podcast and, and how we've decided to create this podcast and have it be this natural, fluid discussion between the two of us. I don't even discuss how I feel about a movie with you before we literally yeah. Yeah, put yeah, yeah. the recording, situ- before we turn the recording light on. Which has been incredibly hard with this movie. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's so, it's to the point too where on on the internet, if we're trying to talk about something that's current, I need to basically stay off Twitter for... It is the strangest thing, right? Because you stay off Twitter, Instagram, whatever, uh, to avoid spoilers for something. But then we also have to stay off of it until we've had our say, because yeah. you don't want it necessarily tainted by anything else. Yeah, and, and it's not like a plagiarism thing, but it's, it kind of... It's, it's along those lines, because your scumbag brain will take any opinions that it, like anything that fits in the puzzle that you're trying to put together. Yeah. Your brain is looking for things to fill that hole and then whatever will justify it, your your brain will keep. So you, you kind of pick up information everywhere and then that's how you form your opinions on things, which is great, but not if, not if you're running a podcast and you're trying to sell an opinion as your own, which is wonderful when you're looking at um, a David Lynch film because... Everyone is wrong and everyone is right. It's like we're all in an escape room shouting clues at each other and from it, the other end. But it end. doesn't matter because nobody is correct. That's true. So Because it's art. Yeah. <laughs> and how, I, how I'm picturing this movie is I don't want to read anything else about I it. I don't maybe either. A, maybe in terms of the filmmaking and, and how um, that kind of those elements were executed because there there is a full movie pretty much playing out in this universe that we never get to see. Oh, yeah. Which is fucking cool. Like, we'll talk more about that. But what's lovely about it is how much of that picture is painted with with us watching the film through a different lens. And that lens is solely the dubbing studio and the sound effects studio. I'd love to wa- to learn more about filmmaking and in, in, in that process through this movie. But... Anything else like themes and and what the spider means and what the dreams mean and the yeah. coloring and why we chose to zoom out on this person or or zoom in on this note or zoom in on on these uh, audio cues I don't want that explained. I think it's another situation where I I maybe the furthest I think I'd like to go is uh, again I'd like to read that script like that's kind of it like that maybe maybe the script will really help me figure uh figure this puzzle out but you're right i don't want anybody else's sort of critical um analysis of of the themes um yeah and a a lot of that comes down to too like this is just a really gorgeous movie yeah so even if you you aren't able to stitch together some kind of linear storyline which right now i'm sitting at that i i get 
all the the face value stuff and then I get where it kind of devolves from uh what's to be expected in the, of the third act but regardless it's gorgeously shot and it sounds amazing oh yeah it's 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 no surprise that a movie that is about foley uh, has great foley oh Surprise! my god so great right if you're unfamiliar with berberian sound studio i have to slow down <laughs> when i say it uh it is about a character named gildroy uh who is a accomplished foley artist in britain who's been brought to italy to help uh finish to help polish out and do the finishing touches on an italian horror movie to be honest i do not think he's a foley artist i think he's in like a sound engineer, he's a mixer. So he's, okay, so my, he's my, like a manager. Of my Foley. mistake. You are right. I am sort of blending those together. He is very much a sound mixer. There are sequences in the movie where he starts doing Foley work, and it seems. But 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 he's in Italy to to help score this movie. Damn it, he's in he's in Italy to help mix the soundscape for this movie, uh, and you know things seem to be going okay. But there's something strange about the entire experience. And that's kind of it. It's really just him going through the day-to-day process of getting this movie made and also figuring out why he was brought there and if there's some other purpose for him there. Uh, it's it, it almost sounds like a more modern Suspiria that takes place in a recording studio instead of a dance studio, but it's not quite like that. Um, yeah, it's not quite so on the nose with something is under the underneath the surface it's more of um an unease that's throughout the film and 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 that's portrayed through negative attitudes and people being kind of curt to him yeah and him not getting customs or is he really not getting customs and people are just treating him like an outsider yeah there's there's a creepy atmosphere that kind of comes from this like unease of doubt I guess. I don't know. Well, and and two, there's a language barrier because he doesn't speak Italian, at least for the first half of the film. (laughs) And a lot of times things are being said in that studio that he has no understanding of. And he's being thrown into this situation that's obviously already in progress. The two actresses, um, because it's an Italian film, everything is dubbed. They didn't film audio with the films, which is, that's perfect. That's exactly why this is set in Italy, because everything can be done in this studio. So you have the two main actresses reliving the scene and recording the the dialogue for it. So cool. I love that we get to see so much of the movie within the movie. It's, It's so, it's such a brilliant choice too, right? Because you see lots of notes about what is being shown on screen. And there is a commentary track that's sort of introducing the scenes before they're being played out. But you never actually see them. You never see any visuals from the movie. You only get the audio. So you're building it together in your own mind. And there are plenty of shots where you're sort of staring directly into the eyes of an actor uh, while they're belting out a scream into a microphone. And it's... um, the the witch audio sequence is the greatest thing ever. Yeah. Because she's just babbling giggledy-gook, uh, witchy giggledy-gook. And then when he starts to put the reverb and the effects on it, and with how her face is lit, like a 1930s black and white film with the screaming hands, oh, it's so fucking creepy. Can you place a time frame on this movie? Do you have any idea when it's set? <sighs> I would have guessed 
70s or 80s. But it's it could just as easily be earlier than that too, right? Yeah. You know? Um I think that's intentional. And like you know what? I'm just going to float this one theory out there cuz I think it's probably the most common, I would assume. This is everybody's immediate thought after seeing the movie like what if he's dead? What if he has arrived in the afterlife? Or hell, we'll call it. That never came to my mind. Never? No. Because he, the, the very beginning, he just arrives with bags. We don't see him get off a plane. We don't see him come through a door. He's just there with bags. There's even, like, as he's walking down the hallway, he distorts. Uh, in my mind, it's a distorted image that he walks into. as almost like he's passing through some sort of barrier. It's uh, nice to know that there's dogs in hell, if that's the case. If that's the case, <laughs> yeah, there's dogs in hell. Um, Do you think this is his version of hell? Possibly. Like, it does is- not look like his version of heaven, I'll tell you that much. Yeah. Hey, I, I gotta say, for the right type of person, just being brought on a business trip where you have to, every single day, beg them for your expenses to be reimbursed, and they keep handing oh. it off to one person to the next to the next, that sounds like hell. Doesn't that whole scenario about getting his plane ticket reimbursed give you so much anxiety? It does. Everyone is so at the end of their rope with him when it's the first time he's asked them. Oh yeah, that's and not that my job. Hand reception- it to this guy. Receptionist is so mean. She's the worst, yeah. And then Francesco's like, you know what? I think Elena handles that. I told you already. And she goes to Elena, and Elena says that Francesco does it, and blah, 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 blah. So eventually we find out that somebody else in another building has it. But he's not in, so we can't talk to him. This goes on forever and forever. And when he finally musters up the courage, I'm going in there, I'm demanding this shit. And you can see it's taken so much out of him to do this. He is so beyond his comfort zone. He finally gets through to the guy. Look, I need to be paid. This is money. It's owed to me. And what do you mean there was never a flight from Britain to Italy on the day that I flew? I gave you my receipt. Like, does that not just, like, upend that whole movie for you? No, because the second half of the movie is less literal than the first half. And I think that's exactly where we transition over into weird land. Like, that's the moment where it's like... You've always been here. Okay. Okay? You see what I'm saying? I, you know, your theory totally has weight. It's totally plausible. Oh, I don't think that's, I don't don't even know. No, I think it's interesting. I'd like to watch the movie again with that in mind. How I took the film is that he thinks he's coming to do the Foley work on a film about horses. The movie is called The Equestrian Vortex. It's basically like Suspiria with Horses is what I pictured in my mind's eye. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, especially down in that chicken coop. <laughs> but he has to get more hands-on because as you kind of learn, this is kind of a tumultuous uh, working situation and people are being hired and fired and showing up and not showing up and the director's there and the director's not there. And the director's kind of not working when he is there. Mm. And so Gilderoy has to get a lot more hands-on than he's used to. And he's doing a lot of visceral things. He's doing stabbing motions. He's doing squelchy sounds. He's scoring the the horror, the horrific sounds of this movie. And I think it's just getting to him. Oh, totally. Because he, he essentially has to act out torture sequences. Yeah. And so what I believe the second half of the film is, is just a visual representation of him being scared, him being afraid. So kind of how the spider like slowly infects um, his life at home, but it's also the transitions. Like sometimes the spider's in the office because we transition it and it's like a whole day has passed and he's 
nothing's different. He didn't rest. Mm. You know what I mean? Because it's all in one smooth transition. So it's like he's bringing his work home with him. And that work happens to be like the fear that he's bringing home. Because it also infects his nightmares as well. And he has these like waking nightmare sort of sequences where he's in the studio or is he sleeping or is he in his house? All of a sudden he speaks Italian and he's on the screen. Like it gets pretty trippy at the end. Yeah. So if if, if we could just narrow in on the he speaks Italian part. At some point toward the end of the movie, if you're unfamiliar with it, we have a sequence a hallucinatory sequence, we'll call it, a nightmare sequence, and then we are back at the beginning of the movie where he first shows up to the studio, but now he speaks Italian, and it's like he's a different person. Now, the, the conversation He's being dubbed by not yeah. the actor. See, the, exactly. The, the actor is Toby Jones, yeah. um, who's a British actor, and he's awesome, but the he's being dubbed by somebody else entirely in that second round. Yeah, which I think is great. But I don't quite understand. It. <laughs> so, but on the other hand, like let's let's just uh, let's let's assume that the the hellscape afterlife thing is kind of what's going on. It, that transition into his Italian speaking section, where he's been dubbed, kind of comes at a point where he's got this realization that things aren't quite what they seem. So it's like he accepts it, and he assumes. I'm so glad the you said ability. the word accepts. Actually, so yeah, once he realizes things change all of a sudden, right? Uh, and if we were, if and oh man, I got, I'm so wrong, but I, I love just like going on this theory. Um, if we want to talk about acceptance, when he first, <laughs> when he first shows up, I didn't think we were gonna get so theory heavy. Okay. <laughs> I was just like, it's some cool visuals. It means nothing. And you're like, he's in hell. I, I don't know, though. Honestly, like for a guy who definitely deals with anxiety, uh, like a fear, especially where he's he's at a job where he's not necessarily being paid and he's watching people get replaced all the time to then watch him get dubbed over is also an interesting move because he's been replaced by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, but so acceptance, right? Okay. There is a very odd moment in this movie where... Santini is being very the grape. Yeah, what, what what are the words that I'm looking for here? So like essentially like flirty? I flirty. <laughs> I don't know if I I don't know if I'd call it flirty, it's not flirty. but he's definitely it's like a exercising dominance move. over yeah. him. Like, like he literally feeds <laughs> him. Like if he were a big gorilla and he was handing out food, everybody would be like, oh, that's the that's the primary ape. That's the what do you call him? Master ape. I don't even King know. Ape. King ape. <laughs> That's King ape. <laughs> alpha. Oh yeah, alpha. Uh, there yeah, we go. Yeah, it's yeah. the alpha gorilla. So yeah. So like, and we all bow to him or whatever. Um, we all understand that he's the toughest around, and he gives the orders, and we do what he says. Like he literally puts food in his mouth and then makes him swallow the grapes. Yeah, seed. that was really weird. Yeah, like, like for, we eat the seeds. From when I where I come from, we eat the seeds. He makes him do it. He's he's it's it's a bunch of little processes it's like he's primed him for that moment and that is the final tipping point where it's like you're mine now and i own you and i think that acceptance is is very close to when he has that weird hallucinatory sequence and he sort of like devolves into his own mind and we restart again in italian something i'd like to point out when he first shows up at the studio and they're doing sound effects uh they are smashing melons for like head explosion scenes. Mm-hmm. And then the Foley artist comes over and hands him watermelon and doesn't say anything. And he reluctantly accepts it and eats it. 
And I have to assume that that also has to tie into it somehow. So you're dividing the acts of this movie based on the vegetables and fruits he's eating in the movie? I think so. I mean, why do we have so many shots of him then taking something like cabbage and putting it into a bin where it's all rotting? There is a lot of shots of rotting fruits and vegetables, and I have no idea what it means. Yeah, I have no I, I think it's just this lingering sense of dread, like... yeah. I don't know, that death exists everywhere, even in surreal places like movie studios where we're creating death for entertainment. And something that's so, like... Like, there's something beautiful about that. There's just fruit quietly rotting in the corner. Well, it's something so fresh and unique, um... Being sort of used, but not for its intended purpose. Yeah, Yeah. and then just cast away. Here's 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 the real thing, though. This this is not what I'm getting at, but this is 100 percent the movie for me. None of it really means anything. Like I think it's just it's just a great collage of images and sounds and story ideas. It's so fucking gorgeous. Oh, it's amazing! I love watching this movie. Stunning. It tickles every part of your brain. Yes, every single scene you could cut into a wallpaper. It is just well shot. It's the cinematography is amazing. Yeah, the whole thing takes place in that studio. We have a sound yeah. booth, we have a mixing room. And an apartment, which, for all we know, is attached to that building. I mean, when they connect the timelines, it fucking seems like it is. It's the, the editing in this movie is so fucking seamless, too, right? Oh, Where yeah. we just, like, we transition Night from... today the, is... Yeah, from the studio to his apartment, back to the studio, and it's like, he he's in the studio, and we pan across, and instead of working on a soundboard, now he's writing a letter, and then all of a sudden, Francesco pulls a pen out of his hand, and he's back in the studio, telling him that there's no time for love letters. Can I ask you about those letters to mom? <gasps> I was gonna ask you about the letters to mom. What the fuck? So, I, I don't love... know... <laughs> Them. The so first letter when it's taking up the whole screen and we get to read it ourselves. Yeah. He's put on sound effects from home. He's put on to that ticking to, clock. Yeah. He's doing that for fun. Yeah, I know. Well, it's, I think it's also he's he's away from home. He's homesick. But he's got that just the ticking clock is what we get to listen to while we read the And he's also got sounds of mom. like mom's doorbell and stuff. <sighs> Later on in the movie, he's also uh, recording himself standing on twigs and leaves because it's what it sounds like walking around back at home. Is it? I thought they were going to, he was filming an outdoor scene. I don't think he was, he was in the studio, so the space was set up for it, but he was doing it specifically for himself just because it sounds like home. Like, he does have sound effects of crickets, but he's walking on the leaves and the branches himself. And he Mm -hmm. does that with... um, Sylvia. With Sylvia, yeah. Yeah, something about that scene that I think also helps prove my point that the whole movie is about fear and not a literal thing Yeah, is she's wearing a particular kind of boot. It looks like a witchy boot. Okay. The figure that attacks him in his dream is Sylvia based on the boots. Interesting. Yeah, the film makes a point to show that it's the same boots in both instances. And Sylvia is also the only person that sort of stands up to... Uh, like the, the the shitheads that are running everything, well, right? Well, and how I believe, so if you think it's this purgatory or death situation, I she's definitely in the same boat as Gilderoy because she has that same nagging outsider questioniness as he does. And she's the one that starts to like plant these seeds of doubt in his head. Well, I think it's also because she's f- not necessarily fed up, but done with San- Santini and Francesco's bullshit game. Like, she even says, like, I'm just a horde of them. Like, they just use me, and they, they, they don't treat her like a person. And I think she sees that in Gilderoy as well. Mm. Like, he is essentially in their crosshairs. Not in the exact same way, but they are 
looking down on him as uh, as just like a toy that they can play with to a degree. But do we even know if those letters are ever arrived from mom? Or is that just a series of letters that he owns and reads occasionally? We see him start to write a letter. He definitely doesn't finish it. We never see him mail anything. We never see him get mail and open it. We just occasionally see him read letters. Yeah, like maybe she's long dead or something. Maybe. Well, she's writing to him, though, about the weather in Italy and how it'll be nice. So it's got to be. Oh, that's such a good point. Well, yeah, my mistake. So she d- she does write to him about Italy. You're right. Yeah, and Italy and are... the magpies. And Well, not no, not the magpies. Oh man, it's like what are the names of the little birds? There's a, there's a few little birds that have um hatched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the magpies eat them. Yeah. And there's blood everywhere. Like that letter gets so detailed and vivid. Like that does not sound like a letter from mom. She's either completely distraught and she does sound that way. But you almost think that she would reserve herself a little bit and just There's like a little bit of it, you you don't want to diagnose somebody from a letter, but it seems a little dementia-y. Oh, maybe. Because the letter seems to like linger and drift. Mm. You know what I mean? Like what was the final really line of that letter? It was like Like I uh, I don't know why they've done it or something like that. Man, I really wish I had uh, it written it down. I can't remember. It's so good though. But when we're in Italian Toward the end of the movie, and he's been overdubbed, one of the other actresses who's replacing Sylvia starts talking to him about the birds. Well, what's happening is she's she says, like, oh, I'd like to run my lines with you. Right. And then she just starts reciting that letter about the, the birds being eaten and by the magpies and how there's blood all over his shed. And he's barely listening. Like, he's working on the soundboard. And then halfway through, he realizes that she's doing the letter. It's trippy. Okay. We see a photo of that shed at the beginning of the movie. Do we? There is a quick photograph of that shed. Okay. I think it's just like when he's like, maybe we're watching him go through his bag or something. It's probably right before he reads the letter from mom now that I think about it. But I think they also make a joke about him working from his shed back at home. Oh, like that's his studio. Yeah. Okay. What if those birds are no? The letters throw this all off. The see, oh, see, like this is this is it. Like there is always like one key element that throws a wrench in any theory uh, of of movies like these. And this is what I love about it because like you think you think you've got it, and you're like, well, what about this? Like, oh, that upends everything because it's it's not supposed to be any one thing. I don't think. I think you're supposed to take whatever you want from it and cherry pick the pieces. But there there definitely exists a world where those birds were killed and it just like broke him and now he's just like in his studio catatonic and this is the scenario that he's replaying in his mind or something like that he could just be crazy and locked inside his shed for all we know hmm? i have no goddamn idea you know at some point because i i did not want to look anything up about this movie uh and and a lot of this hinged on that grape and just like the way they are so <laughs> mean to him right and a, a very early on like a lot of people would have done this for a lot less for free even and like you, you know they do it for the love of it and you're just squabbling about money and then eventually it's like just do your goddamn job 
do what I tell you to do because you're here and you need to do it and it has to get done. And then we have Santini come in who's like, oh, bright and cheery, I'm the good cop. And then he exerts his dominance over him a little bit. Uh, I was starting to think that this was just like this long brainwashing process. (laughs) So then I started reading articles about brainwashing and how it works and like different techniques. And I can't really say that this movie is about brainwashing. No, I think it's just to make everybody uncomfortable it's boy howdy does it everybody is just the right amount of unsettling yeah and for the type of character gilderoy is like just the right amount to make him doubt and be uncomfortable but not enough to like stand right up and fly home yeah why Uh, why do you think they brought him why why him I don't know. Because he's so celebrated when he comes. Like, oh my god, you're here. This is great. Everybody, look, it's it's Gilderoy. Gilderoy's here. The movie's finally going to be amazing. Yeah, I think he's just really great at sound. And maybe the director just likes to stay up late at night and watch documentaries on the History Channel. He's like, I need this guy. He can make an alien out of a light bulb. That's so true. That is very true. But don't you think if he was going to hell, they'd be like, oh, welcome home. They'd roll out the red carpet. Like, hey, Elliot, how the hell are you? Like, it'd be a party. And then it twists and turns. I actually have no other theory. Uh, so the, that's just what I'm leaning on. For me personally, honestly, though, I do think it's about a very fragile person yes, who definitely. cracks. Like that's that's really all it is. Like mm. I think we okay, fine. So mm. we're we're both maybe arguing two different things. I'm not saying he goes absolutely insane, but uh, but like like you're saying, I think the second half of the movie is maybe more. Uh, his internalized experience. Like an interp- yeah. yeah. We see the literal world is the first half of the movie. And then we see its effects on him inside his own mind in the second half. Yeah. Yeah. It's, Two it's sides of the same skewing coin. the, but because it's, it's a film, we're getting kind of um like a visual representation of like shit falling apart. Yeah. Um, which is really interesting because this movie is about a movie with zero visual cues. It's good. Oh, it's good. Uh, which I don't know if we're giving enough credit to. Uh, these two movies make me appreciate film more. I, I'm really happy with this pairing. I'm really glad you made me watch these two movies. Yay! Because I think a lot of time we pick movies that are fun to talk about and really cheesy and fun to watch, and we don't get a lot of opportunity to talk about films that like, oh fuck, film is fucking cool (laughs) like i feel smarter having watched both of these two films and understanding nothing and yeah i i don't know anything else i just know that sounds sound cool and looks look cool and (laughs) looks look cool (laughs) and tape reels are awesome right i think that's what i think that maybe that's what this is all about just me wanting to watch a bunch of like really tight close-up shots of tape recorders i have a question for you yeah there's a part in this movie near i would say with 15 minutes left where we cut to a documentary about like a certain the highlands or the moors or something in in london yeah why do we do that and like the characters (laughs) don't cut to it nobody's watching it we're watching it and it it's literally something else for a few minutes that is so very true why I really hope you have a theory because I have absolutely nothing. And well, if we want to say that the second half of the movie is is very much like an internalized. Is look. that where he wants to be? Is yeah, because he's he homesick. Wants to I be think, doing? right? Maybe. Like, oh, I could be scoring meadows. I don't even know if it's necessarily scoring the meadows. It's just that that's 
that's just where he wants to go. That's that's where home is. He wants to be back there. So if we are seeing like synapses of his mind, like obviously we would we would see images of home. I guess mm. it's really odd that we keep seeing uh, his internalized fear of of the actual studio. So just thinking about like the, the brainwashing stuff and <laughs> and how things in the studio are purposeful and maybe there as torture. I have no idea. Um, d- d- didn't it seem intentional that Massimo and Massimo weren't there doing the Foley work for a few days and he had to do it himself? Definitely. Because it's... It's like they want to break him. Potentially. And then we have this moment where the power is out and everybody's his best friend. The power does go out way too much for a real studio. Well, I mean, they're indie filmmakers. You know, they, they take what they can get. But, but the, the, the power goes out, building. and they're friends. And like he's the he's like the the star of the show, and he entertains them, making those UFO sounds. Power comes back on. They go back to hating him, or not necessarily hating him, but being very curt with him, which mm-hmm. is a very common technique. John, I have, I have no idea what this movie means. Do you know anything about? Okay, I'm gonna go on a bit of a tangent. Okay. Just give, because this is... Give me theory number four. <laughs> well, no, no, no. It's not even theory number four. It's about brainwashing. Like, when else am I going to get to talk about this? So, like, a big thing I do is, not think there's any brainwashing. I can't I can't help but assume it has something to do with it. Do you know much... We, we would refer to it ma- mainly as, like, the good cop, bad cop technique, right? Where you basically just, like, starve a person and beat them. And then you just show them one small ounce of kindness. And it seems like the world. Where, like, you just gave them a glass of water or... You ask them how their day was, or mm-hmm. I guess just a childhood memory, and it's it means nothing on a regular day. But because they've just been living in hell for whatever period of time, it blows their mind, and you are like a god to them to a degree. Um, and then they immediately go back to torturing you because that just it, that breaks your identity. Like that's the biggest one of the biggest points in in brainwashing is to destroy the self and then rebuild the self. Specifically as an Italian overdubbed man. I don't know. But that might be what the light bulb's about. There's also this technique called the birthday party. Have you heard about the birthday party? Uh-huh. Have I talked about this in the podcast? No, but you've talked about it to me. Oh, boy, <laughs> have I. Okay, if you guys have any interest in brainwashing, there is this really horrible, awful technique, apparently. I don't know. I guess the Americans either did it or studied it at one time with like the whole MK Ultra program. Where uh, that, was that, that like the we're gonna do drugs and be wizards? That was part of it. Yeah, <laughs> that was that was part of it. Okay, that was like that period of the fifties to the eighties, I guess, where <laughs> the American government was like, let's just fucking do anything that comes to mind in the name of science. War science. War science. <laughs> Cold war. Science. The only science worth funding. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that's a very that's a t-shirt. <laughs> um. So yeah, they torture you, they beat you, and then they throw you a birthday party. Like, everybody that's been torturing you and awful to you. And it's like a, any regular birthday party that you've been to where people are making small talk. They're asking you about your plans for the year. Um, they give you a piece of cake. You're the man of the hour. And then they go back to beating you later on. Like, it's just so fucking weird. And it's about getting the person to crack. And I think Gilderoy cracks in this movie. So then who are all these third party people the goblin character the I think they're goblins character <laughs> shut up <laughs> the, well then the two girls the... I don't know they're making a movie John I think it's his <laughs> personal hell I don't think it's hell mm. I think it is just his personal hell 
Um, I don't, I don't think he's actually gone into the afterlife or some other weird place, but, um, we, we, we will, we will all come back from a business trip or something and say like, oh my God, that place was my personal hell. Mm. And this is just an example of what that personal hell was and taking that, uh, maybe to a very extreme place. You're like, okay, well, what if it actually was your personal hell? What if when you died, you actually went back to that memory and just relived it? Um, that could be it, because it seems like his anxiety is at level 10. My anxiety is at level 10. <laughs> just watching this movie. Thank God the, the movie is so beautiful. Otherwise, it would be so stressful to watch. Because you can get you can get so lost in just what this movie looks like. It's so visually stunning, but like I think that is the problem with that first time watch. Stressful <laughs> because you you're you're really sucked in. It's gorgeous. It, it's it's the the audio is rich and it's it's unlike any other storytelling device that you've seen. Uh, and and then all of a sudden it gets turned into like it's this weird, really weird and crazy it's over. movie. And you're yeah. like, wait a minute! I I gotta watch this again. I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> I was watching with my eye. I was watching with my heart and not my brain. <laughs> Damn it. That's what I'm saying. I'm so happy we watched. This is this conversation was two watches coming and we still have nothing concrete to say. Yeah. Can you imagine only one watch? We'd be like, I liked it when the lights were red. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> that was a highly jiffable moment. <laughs> what do you okay, so mm, there there's got to be something about the title card of this movie. So the the opening credits are not for this movie. It's no. for the movie in the movie. It's like a film by Santini whatever. Dim, 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 dim. <laughs> yeah, like and it's we are seeing actors and producers and credits that are not this movie. We should watch it again and see if Gilderoy's names in there. That's a really good point. Right? Yeah. And who's the, whose name is the the lead actress? If it's Sylvia, oh, probably not. Or if it's the girl that they replaced her with. Oh man. Okay, well, guys, well, we'll see Things you here to- again next year. <laughs> you Things know how you point out th- those podcasts where they'll watch the same movie over and over and over and over again, and it's funny because it drives them crazy. I feel like we need to do that as a side project <laughs> with this movie until we get it. Oh boy. I don't those those letters though. They those they have to mom, be yeah. they have to have some evidence in them to like <laughs> cracking the movie. Like we've been given the cipher, guys. We have the cipher. Oh man. Talking about this movie is my the, the only thing I think I like more is talking about Twin Peaks. Like they are on the same level cuz we're never going to crack it and we're always going to find something new and we're all oh well what about this? And uh and it's it's great. It fits everything except the letters. The letters snap it back. We're never going to get to the bottom of this. Mm. We're going to find out that it's just like an allegory of like Gulliver's Travels or the Canterbury Tales and we're the only idiots that didn't get it. Yeah, I mean, I think the primary motivation of this movie is making a movie that you don't get to see, and mm. then everything else is jumping in puddles. You know what I mean? Like if if we're out in the rain, we might as well jump in the puddles. Like if we're making a horror a movie horror movie, if we're making a movie about a horror movie, we should make it tense and uneasy. Mm. We should make it visually jarring. We should make it dreamlike. We should have it descend. But maybe at all, like maybe the movie is being held up. Like the tentpole of this movie is that it's a movie in a movie. 
And we're only getting it doled out in tiny, tiny little doses. And we're so busy trying to figure out what that movie is that we don't realize that everything around it is interesting. Hmm. Until the movie is weird. One small interesting detail I saw that I don't know how necessarily how it works into it. And I think it's probably only there because it's an Italian horror movie. Uh, the projectionist, who we never see turns the film reels on wearing black gloves like the killer in a giallo movie and i would argue that this film is what is quote unquote killing gilderoy it's killing him to work on this movie mm. so like the the weapon of choice is that film that we never see that's a really nice point thank you but i got nothing else other than that so like i can't i can't build an entire theory on it like if we are going for giallo film like, there's definitely a lot of music and score in there and just, like, ethereal music. And our killer has has gloves, but it's like a it's like a psychological giallo movie. But it's, like, a, a, about a giallo movie. Oh, man. I don't know what this movie is about. Yeah, and I think that's what's going to make it eternally interesting and rewatchable. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoy it, though. And having already seen it twice... This year, I'm going to watch it again before the week is out. I think so. I think we need to watch it. Especially now that we've talked about it finally. Um, I need to watch those opening credits again. I need to read the letters again. Yeah. Um, And I want to watch it with with your theories in my mind. Like watching it as if he's dead or if he's in some kind of purgatory or something. Because I think that would make for an interesting watch. I kept trying to get my head out of that while we were watching it. Because it's kind of like a like a go-to theory <laughs> if mm. if the oh we don't understand the rules or why this place is weird they're probably dead like that's just my immediate thought and it's it's not always see true. mine is like oh they're crazy <laughs> <laughs> yeah like either they're unreliable or because they're crazy or they're unreliable because they don't know they're already dead yeah yeah my my mind just instantly went to like okay this isn't literal we're watching a film about a film and they're taking creative liberties and telling it to us and we get to watch some eerie, creepy shit done really well and really cool. Man, I can't wait to... Still haven't seen The Duke of Burgundy. I hear great things about it. Uh, also from Peter Strickland. And In Fabric. In I fabric. have been chasing In Fabric for a year now. Yeah. Um, it's coming out soon. I'm going to see it. And our contributor Grant saw it uh, last month uh, as part of... Tribeca. Tribeca. And he really liked it. And the photos look so cool. And I've heard nothing but good things. Yeah, so I can't wait to see it. I'm excited. The, so based on just um, Berberian Sound Studio alone, he's going to get an Oscar, right? We just need... <laughs> I don't know. We just need like the Hollywood dummies to <laughs> um, to get on a, on a hype train, right? Like what's different about Berberian Sound Studio and anything else you've seen nominated for an Oscar? Nothing. I don't want to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> hype. It's just hype. Sure. Yeah. The, I guess the money hype. I know that this was an official selection. The monetary selection. hype train. The monitor. Toot, toot. Okay. Uh, I know that this, uh, instead of coal, they just shovel in. They just shovel <laughs> in bad reviews. Street. Yeah, oh. that works too. Yeah, I like that more. Um, no, in, uh, I know that this is an official selection at TIFF and Fantastic Fest from 2012. I would actually be interested in reading those reviews um, 
from those festivals because it's like very quick immediate reactions i'd love to see what people were saying when they first saw this with like no real other feedback or yeah yeah, no consensus on from anybody else except for the people at the bar so (laughs) uh that said though kim what's your rating of berberian sound studio um i want this movie a three and a half out of four it's really fucking cool it looks amazing the only reason I can't give it a four out of four is because like, I don't fucking understand it and I kind of feel like a dummy. Yeah. But uh, can are you allowed to like love a movie that you don't understand at all? Of course you are. <laughs> of course you are. Well, then I love it. Yeah, I love this movie too. I understand a goddamn thing about it. <laughs> I mean, it took me hundreds of times watching 2001 A Space Odyssey to really kind of get it. Uh, same with I don't get it but that movie upsets me yeah, well same with Lost Highway right Lost Highway Mulholland Drive do you get it probably not still, it, still yeah. love it no it upsets me too I can't wait to talk about Lost Highway on this podcast it's gonna be so good it's also that gonna the be the with the cowboy hat no that's Mulholland Drive oh <laughs> uh. <laughs> no um Lost Highway is the guy with the um, with the cell phone here, call me. Oh I'm- God, <laughs> no! <laughs> I'm in your house right now. Oh, talk fuck. to me. Don't that like that's giving me fucking chills right now. Don't. <laughs> it is the scariest thing ever put to film. Oh my God, no! My computer's updating. What are you doing, you turd? I'm also giving this movie a 3.5 out of four. Um, I have no problem loving things that I don't understand because uh, movies are about more than just understanding it. Sometimes it's an emotional. Uh, reaction. Sometimes it's just an experience. Um, I would say in 90... Fuck, 99% of the paintings that I look at that I like, I don't understand. I just love how they look. I like staring at them and wonder... And trying to make my own interpretation of what I'm looking at. And um, I just enjoy the experience. Plus, this movie is brilliantly put together and made by a madman who understands cinema better than I ever will. So I'm very much looking forward to anything else he ever does. Yeah, experiencing a movie through the sounds, especially a horror movie, that's so inventive and creative because these are the same squashes and squishes and stabs that we hear all the time as horror fans. But when you get a different visual interpretation, you have to use your brain more. You have to imagine, and that's that's more akin to reading a book than watching a movie. Mm. It's making you use a different part of your brain than you would be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because you have to use, like, your your mind's eye. <laughs> There's no better way of saying that. Open your mind's eye, everybody. You're Watch Berberian Sounds. You're hipporetus. <laughs> I wish I knew the name of the little Versus thing that pops out of your forehead. Hippo watches. In, in the beyond, but hippo watches. <laughs> In the cerebral snackus. Well, that's our science lesson for this week. Let us know what you thought of Brian De Palma's Blowout and Peter Strickland's Berberian Sound Studio on Twitter at nofspodcast.com. Uh, in the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash horror fiends of NOFS. And of course, on Reddit uh, in the Nightmare on Film Street subreddit at reddit.com slash Nightmare on Film Street. No, reddit.com slash r slash Nightmare on Film Street. 
Uh, we're going to stick around and play a little game that I've put together. I'm really proud of this one. John, I went all out for your birthday. Yay. Um, I have pulled a bunch of really gross audio samples. Yay. Uh, squishy vegetables, gooey fruits, and all other kinds of grossness. Um, I'm going to play them and gross all of us out. <laughs> and John has to guess what is actually causing the sound. So I've got... Celery. Breaking bones. I got blood. I got gore. I got brains. I got slop. And uh, they're all from things in your kitchen. So John's going to have to guess what is being stabbed, punched, gooped, and... You know, the craziest thing is that I'm sure none of this is gross to listen to if you've got a visual cue or something to look at while it's happening, but it's going to sound like people are chewing gum in my ears. Pretty much. Really gross, wet sloppy gum um (laughs) if you want to listen to that and all of our other bonus content that we have recorded for patrons you can support the show at patreon.com slash nightmare on film street uh you can have instant access to all of those back episodes there are hundreds at this point there's games for every single episode that we've done here and uh there's tons of other cool stuff. We do shout outs. There's merch. There's all kinds of stuff there. Every dollar that we get gets funded back into Nightmare on Film Street to pay for our hosting and bandwidth, giveaways, all of our fun stuff that we do here at Nightmare. So thank you so much for those of you who supported us. If you can't support the show right now, you can always leave us a five-star review wherever you're getting this podcast. You can also recommend the show to a friend, a fellow fiend who you think would enjoy this silly little program. Uh, It's the easiest way to grow the horde, spread the word, and support the show for as little as a text message to one of your friends. Or stealing their phone and, you know, downloading it on their podcast. Could do that, too. Surprise! You are now a subscriber of a horror movie podcast. I hope you like them. Aunt Kathy. (laughs) (laughs) But that's it from us this week. I'm John. I'm Kim. Stay Stay creepy. creepy. And happy birthday, John. Aw, thank you very much. It appears you made it out alive. Just long enough to tell the tale of the nightmare on Film Street. Help us grow the horde. Leave a review on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. Continue this week's conversation on Twitter by following at N-O-F-S podcast. And as always, more terror can be found lurking on our website, www.nightmareonfilmstreetpodcast.com. Until next week, stay creepy, fiends. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 